in the Gospel of John today, so please turn with me to uh, John chapter 3. If you're using a Bible underneath the chairs, we'll be on page 518 in those Bibles, and we'd encourage you to take that with you if you don't have a Bible of your own. Caroline Clare, a, a member here and PhD student across the campus, you might see her around, teaches some classes, is coming to read for us. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Ainon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Thank you. Well, our passage today has all the elements of a good joke. A Baptist, a bridegroom, and a Jewish friend walk into a bar. It's right there. No, in all seriousness, our passage today is no joke. It rounds out the third chapter in John in a powerful way. And in case you haven't been here the last few weeks, let me briefly kind of review what's brought us to this point. At the start of John chapter 2, Tad shows us that Jesus offers the best wine, that he welcomes God's people into the eternal wedding feast and he purifies the bride for himself. That's John chapter 2, the beginning. Next, we saw that Jesus is the true temple through whom God's people are welcomed, even now, into the very throne room of heaven. And last week, we saw this interaction between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. And in that story, we see that through Jesus, we know we must be reborn, born again, spiritually, into the kingdom of God. 
Now, in all of these instances, the, the writer of the Gospel of John is intending to communicate that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That first two-thirds of the Bible, John is saying repeatedly in many different ways that it was all pointing forward to him, that he is the one everyone had been longing for. The same is true today. Jesus is still the fulfillment of what we long for. Today, though, John brings all of this home in a really brilliant way in which he exalts Jesus Christ. So whether you're here today unconvinced about Jesus, you're still considering whether Christians are loony bins or there's actually something to all of this, or if you're here today as somebody who's trusted Christ for years and years and years, there are powerful lessons in this conclusion to John chapter 3. If I could summarize the meaning of this passage, it's that John the Baptist appropriately elevated Jesus Christ, and we should too. John the Baptist appropriately elevated, exalted, lifted up Jesus Christ, and we should too. Now, the author gives us three reasons why, and we'll get to those, but I think in order to really grasp them, we first have to set the stage and understand the context. So, Give me a couple of minutes to do that in terms of set up. After Jesus had this conversation with Nicodemus, the next day he and his disciples left Jerusalem, so the same Jerusalem that's on the map today, same city. They left Jerusalem and went to the more rural areas of the nation of Israel. And Jesus was out preaching about the kingdom of God and people were repenting and believing in Him, and then Jesus' disciples were baptizing them in order to show their uh, belief, to show their repentance. Now, fascinatingly, at the exact same time, John the Baptist was in the same area doing the same thing, and yet there was a big difference. John's crowds were shrinking, and Jesus' crowds were swelling. Those two preachers, same area, doing the same thing. One's having a diminished following, and the other is having an increased following. That's what verse 26 says. It says, They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, meaning Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. The baton of influence, if you will, from John to Jesus is being passed in this moment. The baton of the Old Testament to the New is being passed in this moment. But John's disciples didn't get all of that. Envy was clouding their understanding. God himself was walking around in a body and Yet, John's disciples were blinded by their jealousy, so they didn't see it. They were too concerned about the shelf life of their own leader, and therefore themselves, than they were to even notice, to really grasp who Jesus is and what Jesus was doing. Ultimately, these followers of John were discontent, not merely with the shrinking crowds, 
but with God himself. That's how jealousy works. It has something in between us and God, of course, but it's always ultimately about not being satisfied with God and the life that he's given us. They were consumed with fear. I wonder, have you been there? Have you trained somebody at work only to find very quickly her surpassing you in sales and influence? Do you have a sibling who seems to be better at you than everything he sets his hand to? So you're constantly trying to find something in which to one-up him. Are you content with the gifts and skills and personality and resources God's given you? Or do you find yourself critical of everybody because you're weighed down by your own sense of overcompensating for your own inadequacies? Are you thankful for the life that God's given you? Or do you find it incredibly easy for hours to go by as you flip through on social media enviously desiring somebody else's life. Jealousy, resentment, envy, discontentment, covetousness, these are all cancers of the soul. We all need the chemo of the gospel if we would be healed. Now, what's worse than these individual ways in which jealousy plays itself out, is the way in which it can infect entire churches, just like it infected John's disciples. A wise pastor named J.C. Ryle said, the true church must watch and pray against the spirit here manifested by John's disciples. It's very insidious, very contagious, very injurious to the cause of religion. Nothing so defiles Christianity and gives the enemies of truth such occasion to blaspheme as jealousy and party spirit among Christians. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's in the church, not, not in the walls of the building, but among the people of God, that more than anywhere else in the world, we should understand that we're all equals, that no one is better than anyone else. That no gifts, no roles, no ethnicities, no length of time that you've been a part of the church, male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free, rich or poor, healthy or sick, we're all the same. We're all children of God, brothers and sisters welcomed into the same family. If there would ever be any place on earth, that there ought not be jealousy. It ought to be among the people of God. But how easily envy sneaks in our hearts and poisons the unity we have in Christ. She was asked to serve on that team, and I wasn't. I've been here longer. They'll find out soon enough I'm better than her. He gets to teach and I don't. I'm better than him. 
Maybe I'll go somewhere where my gifts can really be used. She's more popular in the youth group, but I'm prettier and funnier. That feels really silly for me to say. (laughs) She's prettier and funnier. I ought to be the one with all the friends. I could do this or fix that or run this or give to that. I can be the one around here. Now, we don't actually say any of those things, but do they express what's going on in your heart? Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. It's the same thing. Church, not only does envy in the church hurt the very people for whom Christ died, not only does it injure those we've covenanted, we've committed together in membership to love each other and serve each other over ourselves, it also makes a mockery of our evangelistic witness in Tempe. Because if we act just like everybody else, then what good is our Savior? Jealousy fuels the world. It is what the world runs on. But it should be completely absent among the people of God. So that's the setting of our passage. Are you glad you came this morning? Now, John the Baptist's response is so enormously helpful on a practical level to help us with these struggles of envy and jealousy. John gives us three truths that elevate Jesus and appropriately bring down envy and jealousy. Number one, he shows us that God is sovereign and good. Number two, he shows us that we exist to make much of Jesus. And number three, he shows us that Jesus is supreme. If you're a note taker, These will be the three things we talk about this morning. God is sovereign and good. We exist to make much of Jesus, and Jesus is supreme. We'll just work our way through the passage together. First, God is sovereign and good. This, to me, is the most helpful verse in the passage. Look at verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. When confronted by the envy and jealousy of his disciples, perhaps John the Baptist was too tempted to feel the same way they felt. Or maybe not. The passage doesn't tell us. But it does tell us the truth that grounded him, that kept him from nurturing a sense of jealousy. Now remember who John the Baptist is. This is the greatest of all the prophets. This is the one who spoke on behalf of God. This is the authoritative mouthpiece for the God of Jacob and Abraham and Isaac and Moses and David and every other famous person in the Old Testament. God had not sent someone to speak on his behalf in over 400 years. This is the one who just weeks before this event, as he stood up to speak 
Entire villages walked days to meet him, to hear his voice, get baptized by him in the Jordan River, to pledge their lives to follow his God. This is a man of enormous popularity and significance. And Jesus himself had said that no man is greater than John. That among those born of women, no one's better than John, Matthew 11, 11 says. But far from being threatened by or envious of Jesus' surging popularity, John found delight in it. He enjoyed it. There was not a jealous bone in his body. Now, why? Because he understood God is sovereign and God is good. In other words, God's in control. God's trustworthy. Whatever God gives you in life, he's given it to you on purpose. And he's given it to you for your own good and for his glory. And whether your influence is small or your influence is great, whether your resources are few or many, whatever God gives you, God gives you. God is good and God is sovereign. John lays out the most basic, profound, simple, helpful truth. God is sovereign and God is good. Why would we be jealous if that's true? If God has all things under his control and he's a good God, not that we understand everything he does, but if we're absolutely convinced God's in charge, God's in control, and God is good, then that just erodes out from underneath you any ground upon which to stand in an envious way. Now, yes, we should work hard and study hard and put our backs into our labors, but never as though we finally determine their outcome. God does. Any success that we meet in this life is ultimately not because we are great, but because God is. God is in control, and his plans for you are good. Now, do you see what that does to competitiveness, to jealousy, to envy, to covetousness? we really believe God is good and God is in control, then we have something to fight envy with that will work. You see, one of the results of an accurate view of the bigness of God is a confidence that whatever comes our way has been handcrafted, if you will, to make us more like Christ and to spread the kingdom of God in whatever way God deems appropriate. So if you're battling jealousy, the, the solution is not to build up your self-esteem. The solution is not more accomplishments, a different 
boyfriend or girlfriend, more resources, another degree, that promotion, those things won't fix it. The solution is a rock-solid confidence that God is good and God's in control. Isn't that helpful? So this is the first reason John says, yeah, I'm not biting the jealousy that you're swallowing. This is the first reason why John elevates Jesus. He said, God's good. God's in control. But he gives us another way, and this time by way of analogy that might not be readily apparent. So let's read it again. Verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness. In other words, you've heard me say this, that I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The the friend of the bridegroom is what we would call a best man. Now, today in a wedding, the best man is pretty much just a figurehead. He puts on the bachelor party, and he might, if he's particularly responsible, get to hold the wedding rings. That's it. That's all he does. But in the ancient world, the best man was the guy in charge. He organized and put on both the wedding and all the festivities afterwards. It was up to him to make sure the party went well. I'm not sure what happened, but I'm okay with it. How about you, guys? I can show up and hold some rings. But the best man back then was really important. Now, here's another element to this that John's getting at. No bride wakes up the morning of her wedding, skips her shower, throws on some yoga pants, and decides, I don't need any makeup. Right? She, she gets up early. She pays a ridiculous amount of money for somebody else to fix her hair, as though she can't do this herself. She puts on makeup, wears a very expensive dress she will never wear again but keeps it. Now, why? Well, before we get to why, imagine a bride doing all of that in hopes that the best man would notice her. In hopes that the best man would turn his eye. That'd make for a really weird wedding and a not-so-good best man. Do you see what John's saying? John's saying, I'm just the best man. My, my joy is to watch the groom, Jesus, as he comes in and his bride, the church, is prepared. My role is simply to point to the groom and help things go well. That's it. This is really about Jesus. And Jesus is preparing a bride for himself. But she doesn't have to pretty herself up. 
You see, He will do that for her. He will beautify her through the removal of her sin. John's saying this is, in fact, the thing I have been about all along, was delighting in the moment when the groom would walk in and his bride would be prepared for him. It's a brilliant analogy. John's point couldn't be any clearer. Far from being jealous by the rising prominence of Jesus, this is what John had been about all along. He was delighting in his role because Jesus' surging popularity was what this was all about. Now, the way we might say that today is fellow Christians, brothers and sisters, particularly those of you who have pledged your membership here, who have said, I'm, I'm going to drive a stake, at, stake in the ground. This is going to be my church home. We exist to make much of Jesus. This is why Church on Mill is here. This is why you are here. It's to draw attention not to ourselves, but to Christ. So whatever resources or roles or gifts God has given us, we have them not to glorify ourselves, but to elevate Jesus. You see, there's a tremendous joy in serving God in whatever capacity He gives you. If you had told me 25 years ago that I would ever stand in front of people and read and spend most of my week studying in order to speak, I probably would have spit in your face. I was a rather punk, arrogant kid, and I wanted to go live overseas and be a missionary, be my own boss, wear a grass skirt and go wherever I wanted to go. And now look what God has me doing. But I couldn't be happier. There's great joy. Whether it's making refreshments in the cook kitchen or corralling the preschoolers. We call that teaching, but... Or cleaning this room between gatherings or calling guests who come for the first time. Or simply following up with people on your own, buying them a cup of coffee and taking in an interest in their life. There's tremendous joy in simply doing whatever it is that God has gifted you to do. Making much, elevating, lifting up Jesus, not yourself. If you'll set your sights on Christ, then you'll find a deeper satisfaction than you could ever imagine. We would all do well to put John 3.30 to memory. It says, he must increase, but I must decrease. If you'll read that with me out loud. He must increase, but I must decrease. And that's good news. To the degree that you try to increase and thereby have him decrease, you will become increasingly miserable and make everybody else miserable that's around you. But if you'll look to Christ, make much of Him, then you'll find a joy that you could never have imagined. 
So God is sovereign and good, and we exist to make much of Jesus. But John gives us one more truth, and it's that Jesus is supreme. Now, John 3, 31 through 35 is John the, the author, not John the Baptist. Sometimes the Bible's so confusing, even just names. So there's two Johns going on here. Aren't you glad we don't have any Johns outside anymore? There's two Johns, John the Baptist, who's the story is about, and he wasn't a Southern Baptist, by the way. He was a baptizer. He put people under water. I'm from a part of the country where literally people believed. John the Baptist was the first Baptist. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> All of those people went to public school. And the other John, I did too. I went to public school. And the other John is the, the author of this gospel. So John the author. So the story has been about John the Baptist, but here in verse 31, John the author speaks, and he gives a commentary or an explanation or a fleshing out of what this encounter between John the Baptist and his disciples meant. Are you with me? I'm not near this snarky in the earlier gathering. Now, here's what he says. He who comes... From above, so he's talking about Jesus. He who comes from above is above all. He who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. A very cool image in the ancient world, you obviously didn't have text messages, you didn't have emails, you didn't lick your envelope when you sent it, you took a bit of wax and you put it on the paper, the scroll, and then with a seal you pressed in with your insignia, and it then carried the authority of your weight, your message, your name. He's saying, the Christian sets all he is, sets the seal on his life that God is true. That's a cool picture. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. We'll save the last verse for a few minutes. John's saying Jesus is the best. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is the man. He's saying Jesus alone came from heaven. Now, Christianity, if you're new to it, is way weirder than you've ever thought. We, we believe that Jesus didn't begin when he was born, that Jesus has always been, that he was with God the Father and God the Spirit for all of eternity. And yes, at a particular moment in time, this God became man. He added a body to his deity by the Holy Spirit bringing about the conception of a poor teenager named Mary. And so Christians believe because of that that Jesus isn't simply a great teacher 
a wise leader, a powerful figure. We believe he's God. That there was never a time when Jesus wasn't. And that Jesus, God himself, left heaven and came to earth for a particular purpose. Now, I wouldn't believe that if the Bible didn't say it. If it didn't make it so plain and clear. If it wasn't so integral to the whole story of what Christianity actually is. Christianity isn't a set of rules or morals or behaviors. Sure, it contains those. But Christianity at its heart is God gave his life so that you would have life. And so if, if Jesus didn't come, and he did, God, Jesus, didn't live a sinless life and die a substitutionary death, you should have slept in today. And you ought to find some other religion that's easier. There's plenty of them out there. Because the call of a Christian isn't to sit fat and sassy in Jesus and do nothing. The call of a Christian is to live the life that Jesus lived, to lay down your life. Not to get something from God, but because God's already laid down his life for you. So you see, John's saying Jesus is supreme. Jesus alone came from heaven. Jesus has always been. That when Jesus walked the earth and taught about the kingdom of God, John's saying Jesus didn't speak ideas that were revealed to him. He spoke things he saw. He told people about his father because he, he knew his father. He'd been with his father. Do you see how different that is from either one of these Johns? John the Baptist and John the author of this gospel, neither of them came from heaven. Anything they knew had been given to them, had been revealed to them. But not Jesus. Jesus is the revealer. So John's saying Jesus is substantively. That's not what I'm looking for. Substantially. Thank you for your graciousness. Jesus is substantially of a completely different class. He's God. This makes him preeminent. Jesus is above all. But he also says that Jesus speaks God's words and has God's spirit. In other words, what Jesus says is what God says. His authority is the same as the Father's. This makes him different than anyone who had come before. Because the prophets in the Old Testament, when they spoke, they spoke what had been revealed to them. They repeated what they'd been told. But Jesus has the authority of God himself. So he spoke the very words that he heard from his Father in heaven. He's the same one who spoke creation into existence. And he wasn't like those prophets in the Old Testament who were given the Holy Spirit for a 
particular reason at a particular time. Oh no, Jesus had the full spirit without measure. John's pulling out all the stops to say in as many ways as he can, Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is above all. Jesus is best. And then he says, Jesus reigns. I hope you're not bored yet. This is what Christianity is. Jesus, 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 Jesus. The Father has given Jesus kingship over everything and everyone. That means Jesus is above all forever. So, brothers and sisters, why would we exalt ourselves? Why would we be jealous over another person's successes? Jesus is above all. Jesus is supreme. Now, before we go, let's look at the last verse. Why, you might ask? Well, because it's the last verse. But also, because what Jesus says is the most important thing. And what Jesus does is the most important thing. And what you do with Jesus is the most important thing. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is John's way of rounding out all of these stories that we've looked at the last several weeks. He's saying, believe him, trust him, put your hope in him, turn control of your life over to him, and you'll have eternal life. But disobey him and remain under the wrath and just anger of God forever. Notice the way the author puts two ideas side by side that in our minds don't seem to go together. That if, if you believe Jesus, you'll have life. If you disobey Jesus, you won't. We tend to think of belief today as, as mental assent, as getting fire insurance, as praying a magic prayer and then living however you want. John says, oh no. To believe Jesus, what follows is you will obey Jesus. To, to disbelieve Jesus isn't simply to say that preacher talks silly things. It's to disobey God. So friends, this is nothing to play around with. I recognize today, even in church, it's not popular to talk about the wrath of God. It's not popular to say God gets angry. It's not flashy and doesn't draw a lot of crowds, doesn't sell a lot of books to say that God will forever 
hold in condemnation those who don't turn to Christ. But friends, that's the very plain message of the Bible. Believe Him, have life. A quality of life that is unparalleled. A quality of life that doesn't begin when you die, but the moment God turns the light on in your soul and you push belief in Him. A life that, yes, lasts forever, but a life in which the very life of God is in you now, today. If you're here today and haven't trusted Christ, haven't believed Him, John's message to you today would be, do so now. Don't wait. What you do with Jesus is the very most important thing about you. Let me put that a different way. We've been talking today about envy and jealousy. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe if you look deep down inside in that place where no one else really knows, no one else really sees, is there jealousy and envy there? If so, then this chapter of the Bible would tell you that if you want to get over that, the way you do that is not by getting the object of your envy. It's not by getting that spouse or finally getting pregnant or getting a better job. That none of those things that you look to externally in envy and jealousy will actually solve the problem because the issue's on the inside. You know what they say about pigs? You can dress them up. We, we are people, apart from God, dead on the inside. And so we look for all kinds of ways to bring ourselves to life. One of those is envy and jealousy. And so the gospel message for you is if you want a way out, if you want freedom from envy and jealousy, then don't look to actually get the thing you're longing for because that's not going to work. Instead, look to Jesus, the one who took the punishment for all the selfishness and envy of everyone who would ever trust Christ forever. That's the way out. Only Jesus provides that. Now, church, what about you? Brothers and sisters, there's also much we can learn from John's words. One of the greatest threats to our usefulness before God is envy. It's entirely possible to be set free from envy at conversion when you became a Christian. And yet, like a dog returning to its vomit, you keep going back and munching on it again. And that's disgusting. And so, the gospel is also a message that you and I need. That 
the same God who freed us truly from envy invites us to live truly from envy. And so let's learn to be content with whatever role God gives us, for God is sovereign and good. And we exist to make much of Him, not ourselves. There's a bunch of superhero fans in Churchill Mill. I would say to you, first of all, grow up. But second, let me speak your language for a moment. Personal ambition is your kryptonite. But laying down your life for the cause of Christ, that's where your power is. Paul said, some plant, some water, but God gives the growth. That's true today, just like it's always been true. That our joy in the things of God is not found in how many people like us or notice us or compliment us or thank us or put a little heart on something we post, spiritual, so that we'll feel better about ourselves. Our joy is found in Christ and in simply doing whatever it is that He has gifted us to do, whether anybody but Him ever notices. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, this is one of those sermons where you can hear it and feel convicted as a Christian and go out with all the intention in the world to change. And before you get to the parking lot, have coveted somebody else's clothes in the car they get into. So what do we actually do about this? Well, let me just leave you with one suggestion. Several hundred years ago, a guy named William Law wrote a book, and he said this, if someone's leaving you behind and you're becoming jealous and embittered, Keep praying that he may have success in the very matter where he is awakening your envy. Whether he has helped or not, one thing is sure, that your own soul will be cleansed and ennobled, that you will grow a little nearer to the stature of the Baptist. Pray for those you envy in the very thing that you are envious of, that they would succeed. And you'll find Jesus increasing and you decreasing. Let's pray.